Friends, the second scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. I will read chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Listen now for the word of the Lord. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Startle us with your word, almighty God, that we might encounter your will and your way. Amen. It didn't take long, Mark tells us, for Jesus' fame to spread. In fact, at the very first town in which Jesus and his disciples stopped, Capernaum, as Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, people experienced a profound sense of his authority, different from that of the scribes. And just as their amazement was sinking in, a man with an unclean spirit disrupted the scene. In front of everyone, the demon possessing the man cried out to Jesus, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, Holy One of God. And Jesus immediately silenced and exorcised the demon from the man. This story kicks off a whole sequence of quick-moving stories, one after another, in which no matter where Jesus went, a person's home, a deserted place, a neighboring town, word about him spread. Droves of people sought him out to be cured of every kind of illness and to be exercised of their demons. While Jesus mercifully healed them all, he also instructed them all not to tell anyone what he had done. It is clear Jesus did not want them to spread the news about him. At the home of Simon and Andrew, when it seemed like the whole city was gathered at their door, Jesus cured the sick and cast out all the demons, and again, he did not permit the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. During the following days, as he went throughout Galilee proclaiming the gospel, casting out more demons and curing more people, Jesus again sternly warned the person he cured of leprosy not to say anything to anyone about what he had done. 
Instead of obeying him, the person told everyone. No longer able to go into town openly, Jesus had to stay out in the countryside. And even there, people came to him from every quarter. It wasn't that Jesus didn't want to be with and to help a lot of people. He did. He knew his mission was to be a fisher of people, to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to them. So why wouldn't he want people to spread the good news about him? I have a theory. Jesus wanted to meet people for himself. He wanted to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom on his own terms, in his own words. He didn't want some misinformed reputation to get out in front of him. He didn't want his ministry, which had just begun, to be hijacked by other people, much less by demons. It's bad enough when anyone talks for you, even in the most glowing and flattering terms. How much worse would it be to have one's enemies, demons, out there telling people what your message and mission are? It's understandable that Jesus didn't want his ministry spoiled or twisted by misconstruals, misconceptions, and lies. After all, these could have harmful consequences. They had harmful consequences for Jesus, whose ministry lasted only three short years. And even after all this time, they have harmful consequences for us. Some misconstruals and lies have such sticking power that even though Jesus resisted them and tried to protect us from them, they nevertheless arose and persist. In her book entitled, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, Kate Bowler writes about one such lie. It is the lie of the prosperity gospel. Kate Bowler grew up Mennonite in Manitoba, Canada, home to many Mennonite communities. Describing the Mennonite culture in which she grew up, she writes, Though most abandoned bonnets and buggies long ago, they kept their concerns about the greediness of modern life. Everyone had a grandpa who once ruined a gleaming new car by painting the bumpers black to hide the chrome and knew that the most holy words found outside of the scriptures were, I got it on sale. <laughs> it wasn't until she turned 18 that Kate Bowler became exposed to a different branch of Christianity, one that, instead of lifting up the poor carpenter from Galilee who taught that a good life was a simple one, made the bold claim that God will give you your heart's desires, money in the bank, a healthy body, a thriving family, and boundless happiness. If you pray enough, have faith enough, believe enough, live a righteous enough life. 
fascinated by this view of faith so different from the faith of her childhood. Kate Bowler decided to study it, and she wrote the first history of the prosperity gospel, which is a distinctively North American gospel. I had thought that the prosperity gospel was about material prosperity, and if you believe in God, you will get rich gospel, or if you are rich, you must be blessed by God gospel. The prosperity gospel, however, conceives of prosperity in much broader terms. What Kate Bowler found through her extensive interviews of people who adhered to the prosperity gospel was that while it is true that some people wanted Bentleys, more wanted relief from wounds of their past and the pain of their present. Conceived of in this way, it becomes apparent how easily the prosperity gospel can be at work in our lives, too. This is what Kate found when, at the age of 35, she was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and thought she was going to die. She seriously, personally wrestled with the trappings of the prosperity gospel, and she found how pervasive these trappings were. It seemed as though everywhere she turned, well-intended people would say to her things like, everything has a reason. God is writing a better story. God has a better plan. This is a test, and it will make you stronger. As she faced her own mortality, at times she was tempted to hope that a whole host of the things that she heard people say were true, even if she also found them offensive. As a friend and a pastor, I've listened to people for whom I have cared deeply as they have tried to make sense of their suffering or their grief for what they have lost or have never had. As they have dealt with wounds from their past and the pain of their present, they too have flirted with some version of the prosperity gospel. It's likely the case that we all do this even when we tell ourselves that we should know better. We relate to Jesus and God on transactional terms, putting them to the test of our expectations. Of course, the danger is that if our situations do not improve, if our loved one's illness does not get cured, if our longing does not get fulfilled, we could lose our faith in God. I have seen it happen. I'm sure you have too. Stories like the one we heard this morning, in which Jesus heals a person by exercising a demon, and the ones that follow it, in which Jesus cures people, person after person, with every kind of illness, seem to set up the prosperity gospel on a scriptural basis. I wonder if such misconstruals might have been precisely what Jesus was worried about, what he tried to resist when he instructed the people he cured to tell no one about what he had done. I wonder if he knew how easy it would have been for us 
when desperately seeking a solution to our suffering to draw the wrong conclusions. Honestly, like the people who first sensed Jesus' authority, we have taken so much of what he said and did and twisted it, misconstruing his mission to meet our oh-so-many needs. The need to rid ourselves of suffering. The need to feel in control. The need to feel righteous or to show and tell how favored and blessed we are. The need to avoid feelings of despair. Putting our own words in Jesus' mouth, we tell ourselves things that on the surface sound kind of like something Jesus could have meant. These slight tweaks have significant consequences. One of the ideas that I keep bumping into these days is the notion that you have to be broken in order to be saved. It sounds deceptively similar to what I have often said in our liturgy when calling us to confession, that in order to appreciate the height from which God's grace descends to us, we must also recognize the depth of our sin. I do believe this. It seems to me, however, that this is ever so slightly and yet quite significantly different than the notion that we must be broken and even break things in order for the world to be remade. These days, I have been hearing versions of this in the politics of both the extreme right and the extreme left. Some claim that our system is broken, and they call it out all the time. Others claim that we must break our system. Whatever is being said out there, as much as it may sound like something Jesus said, Jesus did not say it. Just as Jesus never said that prospering is evidence of God's favor, he also never said that we must suffer or be broken in order to be saved. What if we were to allow Jesus to speak for himself? What if we entered into relationship with Jesus without erecting the barrier of our expectations? What if we were to encounter Jesus in his full authority on his terms? As his disciples, we have got to let Jesus be Jesus. Amen.